This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, April 19th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Fox News has settled with Dominion Voting Systems after the news network knowingly presented baseless claims about the company to its audience, all in the wake of the 2020 election. The settlement of more than three quarters of a billion dollars, according to Cato's Walter Olson, should take the wind out of the sails of those who want to make it easier to sue media companies. We spoke today. Fox News engaged in a seemingly continuous stream of discussions about Dominion Voting Systems, the the company that that built and so many uh, voting machines in the United States, suggesting that in fact the election had been stolen, that there had been enough voter fraud, there had been enough questions raised about vote totals that it uh, that Fox felt comfortable going on air regularly for quite a while um, talking about uh, Dominion as kind of a bad guy. Indeed, claiming not only that Dominion was somehow negligent in allowing others to rig the election, but that its machines were themselves purposely rigged in order to change votes. These were very specific allegations. And when the discovery came out in which Fox executives and hosts had been put under oath in depositions. It came to show that Dominion had a tremendously strong case, really an ideal sort of case to bring if you were going to try to win damages for defamation, because it had wide range of false statements, and the judge ruled at an earlier stage that uh, the falsity had been established to the point where Fox could no longer deny uh, in, in a later trial that they were false. Uh, they were uttered not only by guests, and people often have a somewhat uneasy feeling, you know, well, so some guest goes on a talk show and says something libelous. Does that mean the network is responsible? Wasn't just guests, and they weren't just inviting on guests knowing they would say that, although that could get them in trouble. It was also the hosts, um, multiple hosts, who were saying libelous things. And then just to nail down the questions of knowledge and in the law's terms, actual malice, uh, you had extensive discussions in which some of the same uh, hosts, but damningly, many higher-up Fox executives uh, called the allegations things like crazy and false and lies and, you know, we can't have her on again. You know, the, the, there was as big a paper trail and, and verbal trail as you could possibly hope for if you were bringing one of these suits that they knew they were worried about losing an audience to places where people could also go to get the lies they wanted, you know, because at some level, what is driving this is the desire of an audience to be lied to uh, in ways that flattered their politics and, and their assumptions about the world. But so, so there was that enormous paper trail of lots of lying, lots of awareness that the assertions were false. So just, just so we understand, with defamation cases, how important is it that the, the people who are saying the things on air know that what they're saying is either not true or highly suspect. 
The standard in libel cases has been criticized as one that only lawyers really understand. And it, first, it splits between what you can say about so-called public figures and what you can say about so-called private figures. Well, Dominion uh, is probably a public figure, at, and the, the law is somewhat more uh, restrictive in what you can say about people who uh, never put themselves out there, you know, who are just completely private citizens. But uh, but public figures have some protection too, and the Dominion had been lied about in ways that would then be compared with the so-called actual malice standard. Now, the, the term actual malice is misleading because it doesn't refer to a state of mind of, ooh, I want to get him, you know, the, the, the way that people act maliciously toward each other in the sense of wanting to hurt each other. Actual malice in a news context can mean having had it brought to your attention, for example, that something was uh, very likely false and just uh, plowing ahead anyway, not knowing that it's false, not even necessarily intending to put on false things, but being, you know, gr grossly in dereliction uh, of of reason to know that it, that it was false. So the actual malice standard, uh, you know, can play out a little bit differently uh, in the psychology of an editor versus a host. You know, each of them may have different levels of knowledge, uh, but uh, the suit is against the organization. And so the suit, to some extent, uh, if the misconduct is considered to be worse among the executives, you can get them for that. You can sometimes get them for that even if the host has not done anything libelous or vice versa. So this is one of the largest settlements in history of this kind of case. And uh, one of the things that you noted on uh, the Cato blog immediately following this uh, this, this settlement was that um, it should take the wind out of the sails of people who want to make U.S. libel laws more like Great Britain's. And one of the one of the chief people who want to open up libel laws, to quote him, uh, is Donald Trump. He wants to make it easier to sue uh, outlets for libelous or uh, defamation, libel or defamation. He does, and he's not alone because Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, for example, has also made noises about wanting to uh, expand the reach of libel law, make it easier to sue, make it get higher damages. And people sometimes talk about American libel law, and, and specifically when they are criticizing the uh, Supreme Court decision of New York Times versus Sullivan from 1964. Uh, they talk as if, oh, it, it's made it impossible uh, to uh, sue for libel even uh, if you've got a good case, even if you've been libeled, you can't sue. They talk that way. Well, they can't talk that way after this week because uh, a uh, not only uh, was a bell ringing settlement, a really, really large settlement uh, reached in a case, admittedly with very strong facts, with you know very good factual case, uh, but it was done so against one of the world's richest and best lawyered media organizations, uh, and and this. You know, it, if I were to criticize the American state of libel law, uh, I would say there is a real problem in uh, cases being so expensive and not having loser pays as part of them that rich people can push around poor people. That's a genuine problem. And it works both ways because it means that rich plaintiffs who claim to have been libeled can push around small media organizations just by the fear of the cost of litigation. And vice versa, it means that that rich media organizations can sometimes uh, uh, face off uh, even when they have misbehaved on the grounds that it 
it's too expensive to go through an entire suit against them. So that's a genuine problem. But when you look at the actual substance of the law, what the law will treat as actionable and whatnot, I would say uh, not clear you can do all that much better than New York Times versus Sullivan. It draws some of the right distinctions about the people who step into the public spotlight and speech should be more wide open about them, even if it sometimes accidentally leads to some mistakes. We want speech to be more open, obviously, about government figures that we talk about, but also people who have invited us in a way to talk about them by running large businesses or being celebrities or whatever. So Sullivan gets that concept, I think, broadly right. And it also gets broadly right the idea that the common law development of this should be respected. The, it's sometimes spoken as if the Supreme Court came in and replaced common law. There was a fascinating paper done by Cato adjunct Andrew Grossman with David Rifkin a couple of years ago in which he argued, no, they, New York Times versus Sullivan didn't actually change the common law rule all that much because if you go back to the old cases, they were already developing the same sorts of concepts. Now, uh, Justice Brennan may not have been the world's clearest or most uh, logical presenter of what what uh the, those concepts were but the idea that the that, that Sullivan came out of the blue is is actually uh, open to question and so you know I say and and people are discontented as I say with with libel law from both directions you have the traditional discontent which I share that it's too easy to file frivolous uh, legal threats in order to make someone take an article down uh, you have the more recently loud and widely heard complaints that it's too hard to sue under libel law. Uh, I think this should make us step back. Um, you know, Part of the idea has always been in 1964 and before and after, we were not doing away with libel law. We were trying to restrict it to the cases where there genuinely was a meritorious case. And that's why uh, the Dominion case was never asking to change the standard. It, uh, Dominion was always saying, we know what the standard is. We're not asking for it to change. We think we meet it. And that's why uh, this was probably never going to be a case in which the courts changed libel law. But it's a case that confirms that it probably works for plaintiffs better than some people thought. I hate for you to try to read the minds of Fox editors and uh, producers. But what changes? I mean, in terms of like, in, in terms of the editorial process, it, it seems to me that that Fox has some uh, cleaning up to do. It's always hard to read uh, the internal incentives within a corporation, a corporation that, of course, makes a lot of money from its news operation and from its popular hosts. At the same time, this is a large dollar amount. It is large enough to result in different sorts of orders going down from a general counsel's office about how an organization has to behave, and especially so since it's not going to be seen as a one-off. Uh, it is going to be seen as a signal for how a series of cases could go both against Fox and against other opinion and news outlets. Now, let me clarify that. There is already one case in progress by two uh, election workers uh, from Georgia who were um, the subject of false statements on 
um, uh, various news outlets, false statements that had been uh, propelled in large part by, by former President Trump's endorsing the false statements, but they have sued various media organizations. And then to get back to the voting machine issue, uh, Dominion is just one of more than one uh, entities that were lied about on the question of malfunctioning or deliberately malfunctioning voting machines. There's a company called Smartmatic. Well, it, it didn't come in for as much of a verbal thrashing as Dominion, but it came up enough that they have a suit going forward. Fox is going to have to address many of the same issues. We don't know whether the depositions will be as bad for them on Smartmatic, but again, this, this is not a set of problems that a company's general counsel ever wants to have in its future if it can possibly avoid it, because the publicity, the distraction, the, I was going to add the loss of consumer confidence, but I guess, you know, somewhat depressingly, it's not clear that Fox has paid as much of a cost in terms of viewers not wanting to be lied to. As I say, there is something that uh, people often like about being lied to if the, it is in line with their political views. This case settled for just under half of what Dominion was asking for uh, as a as a media matter, as a talking point, that seems uh, relevant. But at the same time, if this had gone to trial, had gone or had continued at trial and had gone through the process of appeals, that might have been pretty close to what Dominion ended up with, even if they'd gotten everything that they asked for at trial. I always urge people not to pay too much attention to the numbers that plaintiffs put out as their damage claims, because their incentive, obviously, is to come up with the biggest possible number that won't make people keel over laughing. And so, you know, everyone who gets a finger broken in a car accident turns out to be a future violinist who is going to go to Juilliard and, uh, you know, become the, <laughs> the next Yitzhak Perlman. Now, in fact, you know, that, that's a number that what is itself advocacy, and I wouldn't use it as a reasoning place for where the thing ended up. I would, however, when compared with things like the revenues of Dominion or the size of the voting machine market, those are more reasonable comparators. Uh, and that settlement number is quite large. It's uh, There is no doubt about it. This is not General Motors saying you had to make us drop an entire line of cars. Uh, this is a much smaller business with much less money at stake, and yet they got up to a settlement number that high. To me, it's just very clear that Dominion won. That number represents Dominion winning. It doesn't represent a halfway point between Dominion winning and losing. Dominion won. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.